I hate war as only a soldier who has lived it can, only as one who has seen its brutality, its futility, its stupidity. Dwight D. Eisenhower. Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour. The Radio Hour is a project of Veterans for Peace Chapter 168, Louisville, Kentucky, broadcast on Forward Radio, WFMP-LP, Louisville 106.5 FM. This program is also available on the Forward Radio website in streaming and podcast form at forwardradio.org. That's all lowercase and no spaces. Veterans for Peace is an international organization dedicated to building a culture of peace. We are military veterans, family members, and allies. We accept veteran members from all branches and all eras of service. Veterans for Peace has been exposing the true costs of war since 1985. As veterans, we work to heal the world and ourselves through our commitment to peace. That may seem like a tall order, maybe impossible, even ludicrous. But we must keep in mind that every journey begins with the first step. Please join us on our journey. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of Veterans for Peace Radio Hour. Veterans for Peace Radio Hour is a function of VFP Chapter 168, headquartered in Louisville, Kentucky. We come to you on the last Monday of every month at 1 p.m., and then that same program is repeated on the last Tuesday at 7 a.m. and the last Wednesday at 8 p.m. All programs air right here on WFMP Low Power, 106.5 FM, located in Louisville, Kentucky. The first item today will be a peek into the opinions of three notable scholars and their thoughts about the great American political divide, and if there is a chance for a second civil war right here on U.S. soil. Two of our commentators will be William S. Gale and Darrell M. West. Both are senior fellows of the Brookings Institution. The third is Civil War historian and general historian Nina Silber, of Boston University. After the experts talk about their opinions of potential civil war, we will have an update on two stories from past programs. We will cover the news from VFP's latest activities and we will complete today's show with a short opinion piece by myself on the conduct of war as I observed it in my past military service. Thank you, and now for today's show. We start today uh, with uh, a piece that was released by the Brookings Institution recently uh, by William G. Gale and uh, Daniel M. West. And it's titled, Is the U.S. Headed for Another Civil War? I wish we could have these uh, two gentlemen here with us to discuss this. However, that is impossible. 
Uh, so this uh, piece, which is uh, titled, Is the U.S. Headed for Another Civil War? Uh, written by these two gentlemen. I will be reading this to you. So thank you for your kind attention. It starts out, is it really possible that America could face the possibility of civil war in the near future? It may seem unthinkable, yet there is much, wor uh, much to worry about. A 2021 national survey by pollster John Zogby found a polarity of Americans, 46%, believed a future civil war was likely. 43% felt it was unlikely, and 11% were not sure. War seemed more likely for younger people, at 53%, than older ones, at 31%. And those residing in the South, 49%, and the Central Great Lakes region, 48%, relative to those in the East, at 39%. Meanwhile, Republican Representative Madison Cawthorn of North Carolina made a false claim regarding election integrity and said, quote, if our election systems continue to be rigged, then it's going to lead to one place, and that's bloodshed. There is nothing I would dread more than having to pick up arms against fellow Americans, unquote. The translation, and I'm quoting from the writers, it would be a shame if false election claims cause a civil war. These kinds of remarks should not be taken lightly. The recent survey did not ask people, or did not ask rather, why people thought civil war was possible or how it could happen. But we believe there are several forces pushing many to imagine the unthinkable hot-button issues, racial equality, gun control, abortion, election legitima uh, legitimacy, climate change, vaccines, masks, and the list goes on. Cultural, economic, and political issues generate outrage and hostility. We already are seeing border wars via federalism with individual states passing major legislation that differs considerably from that in other places. As an illustration, a new Texas law virtually outlaws abortions after six weeks of pregnancy, a time at which many women do not even know they are pregnant. While other states continue to uphold the 1973 Roe v. Wade framework and a clear majority of Americans support legalized abortion. High levels of inequality and polarization. These hot button issues are driven in part by the widespread and interrelated divisions that burden the country. Separated by ideology, race, gender, living standards, and opportunities for education and economic advancement, Different groups have dramatically different views about public policy and American society. There can be large variations in opinions depending on the issues. Winner-take-all politics. The sharp 
delineation in perspective does not in itself have to bring government to a halt. Remember, Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan were able to negotiate and reach agreements, for instance. But today's toxic atmosphere makes it difficult to negotiate on important issues, which makes people angry with the federal government and has helped create a winner-take-all approach to politics. When the stakes are so high, people are willing to consider extraordinary means to achieve their objectives. Winning becomes the goal over almost every other consideration, which leads to the belief that the other side doesn't play fair. One of the most worrisome contemporary signs is the widespread belief that the other side is ruthless. Liberals see conservatives limiting voting rights, endangering democracy, and ignoring procedural safeguards. While conservatives think progressives are turning to socialism and disrespecting freedom and liberty. Viewing others with great suspicion and doubting their motives is an indication that faith in the system is eroding and there is little goodwill in how people deal with one another. The prevalence of guns, as if the problems above were not enough. America has an extraordinary number of guns and private militias. According to the National Shooting Sports Foundation, a gun trade association, there are uh, 434 million firearms in civil possession in the United States. That is 1.3 guns per person. Semi-automatic weapons comprise around 19.8 million in total, making for a highly armed population with potential dangerous capabilities. Private militias. Rachel Levy of the uh, Wall Street Journal writes that several hundred private militia groups now exist around the country, and they have proliferated in recent years. Current militias generally are made up of right-wing white men who worry about changing demographics, stagnating wages, and how the shift to a multiracial and multi-ethnic America will affect them. These groups create the potential for violence because they tend to attract radicalized individuals, train members for violent encounters, and use social media to reinforce people's existing beliefs. They openly talk about armed rebellion, and some members of these organizations already have engaged in violence and are helping others plan their own assaults and shootings. Still, civil war is not inevitable. Take a deep breath. Despite the factors above, civil war is not inevitable. Indeed, that scenario faces several limiting factors that hopefully will stop the escalation of conflict. Historically, other than during the 1860s and the Reconstruction period, these kinds of forces have limited mass violence and kept the country together. Most of the organizations talking about civil war are private, not public entities. 
when southern states succeeded in 1860. They had police forces, military organizations, and state-sponsored militias. That varies considerably from today, where the forces who have organized for internal violence are mostly private in nature. They are not sponsored by state or local governments, and they do not have the powers of government agencies. They are voluntary in nature and cannot compel others to join their causes. There is no clear regional split. We do not have a north-south schism similar to what existed in the 19th century. There are urban-rural differences within specific states, with progressives dominating the cities while conservatives reside in rural communities. But that is far different from geographic divide than, uh, that is a far different geographic divide than when one region could wage war on another. The lack of a distinctive or uniform geographic division limits the ability to confront other areas, organize supply chains, and mobilize the population. There can be local skirmishes between different forces, but not a situation where one state or region attacks another. A history of working through the ballot box. Despite Republicans increasing and false accusations that elections they lose are fraudulent, an example, a GOP candidate, Larry Elder, made unfounded claims of voter fraud in the recent California recall election before the election even happened. America has a history of resolving conflict through electoral and political means, not combat. Although there has been a deterioration of procedural safeguards and democratic protections, the rule of law remains strong and government officials are in, firm, are in a firm position to penalize those who engage in violent actions. We expect that these limiting factors will allow the country to avoid a full-scale civil war. However, with nearly half the country believing this con uh, conflict is likely, we need to take that scenario seriously. This is, after all, not the first time the country has been sharply divided. The 1860s conflagration, a needed step to rid the nation of slavery, lasted four years and cost 600,000 lives and had a devastating impact on the economy, political system, and the society as a whole. It was a shocking breach of the National Union by slaveholders and a demonstration of what happens when basic governance breaks down. We should not assume it could not happen and ignore the ominous signs that conflict is spiraling out of control. Even if we do not end up in open combat, there will be an uptick in domestic terrorism and armed violence that could destabilize the country. It is time to take steps to safeguard democracy, address societal concerns, and defuse our current tinderbox. The words of the Brookings Institution, and uh, I appreciate your attention, we will return with our historian from Boston University after this short message. Thank you.
You are listening to Veterans for Peace Radio Hour, coming to you from WFMP Low Power, 106.5 FM, Forward Radio, located in Louisville, Kentucky. WFMP has a great website, and all you have to do is enter the letters WFMP in your search engine of choice, and you will be able to look over our list of programs and even listen live to our broadcast. If you like what you hear, please give some thought to donating to the station, which can also be done through the website. And now we return to today's presentation. Our next presentation is a Q&A from a March 27th 2019 article in BU Today. Again, I so wish we could interview Ms. Silber, but again, being impossible, I will read both the questions and answers, and hopefully we will uh, get the opinion of a very knowledgeable person. Uh, the article starts out saying a recent Washington Post headline says, quote, in America, talk turns to something not spoken of for 150 years, Civil War, unquote. The story references, amongst others, Stanford University historian Victor Davis Hansen, who asked in a National Review essay last summer, quote, how, when, and why has the United States now arrived at the brink of a veritable civil war, unquote. Another Washington Post story reports how then-Iowa Republican Congressman Steve King posted a meme warning that red states have 8 trillion bullets in the event of a civil war. And a poll conducted last June by Rasmussen Reports found that 31% of probable U.S. voters surveyed believe it's likely that the United States will experience a second civil war sometime in the next five years. And I'll remind you, this is from a 2019 piece in BU Today. Is that legitimately where we stand today in the era of uh, Donald Trump, particularly in the wake of the ramped up rhetoric stemming from Special Counsel Robert Mueller's report on Russia's interference in the 2016 election and whether the Trump campaign coordinated with Moscow. Or is it civil war talk, or is civil war talk just crazy hyperbole? BU Today put three questions to Nina Silber, a College of Arts and Sciences professor of history and American studies, and the current president of the Society of Civil War Historians. Silber has done extensive research on the Civil War over more than two decades and has written several books on the subject, including Divided Houses, Gender and the Civil War, Daughters of the Union, Northern Women Fight the Civil War, and a recent, more recently uh, published book, this war ain't over. 
fighting the Civil War in New Deal America. That was University of North Carolina Press in 2018. Along with her teaching and research, she has worked on numerous public history projects, including museum exhibitions at the Gettysburg National Military Park and film projects on the Civil War and Reconstruction era. So if anyone would have a knowledgeable perspective on the question of whether we are headed for civil war, it's Silber. Reader answers about the proliferation of headlines referencing the possibility of civil war. Our first question from BU Today is, Democrats are demanding documents from President Trump, that would be former President Trump now, his family, and many associated with him. The political divide seems to be getting worse. Is it irrational to say this could be the beginning of a civil war? Professor Silber's answer. I wouldn't identify the most recent development, the demanding of documents, as the beginning of a civil war, since I am sure that reflects anything other than the political divide we've already witnessed for the last several years and the fact that the Democrats are taking steps they could not have taken before they regained control of the House. More ominous, I think, are indications of political violence and the willingness to enact political violence. This could be seen, for example, in the synagogue shooting in, in uh, Pittsburgh, when the shooter spoke explicitly about targeting Jews who expressed sympathy for immigrants or the recent case of the Coast Guard officer who was making plans to kill Democrats and journalists. I can imagine a future in which we deal with even more incidents of or plans for political violence. And it's definitely a disturbing development. I am troubled, too, by the role the past president plays in contributing to this atmosphere. But it would have to be something else to call this civil war. That would, be, that would indicate a willingness on the part of masses of people to engage in violence across their, uh, against their political enemies. That happened in the 1860s, in part because people had come to see their political opponents in extreme, even demonic ways and found it impossible to find any middle ground. Maybe our politics and culture are moving in that direction, but I don't see it yet. Next question from BU Today. The political map these days shows so much red in the middle, sandwiched, between by, uh, sandwiched by blue on the coast. How is it different from the North versus South divide of the Civil War? The electoral map at least from the most recent presidential election, does show blue coasts and a red middle. But I think that's also a deceptive picture, since we know that many states, such as Florida, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, there are deep internal divisions. In other words, it's not the case that Florida, Pennsylvania, and others are overwhelmingly Republican. The same could be said for a number of blue states also. The geographic divide today is less clear-cut, less along 
solidly sectional lines. In 1860, the presidential contest reflected the way the political parties had divided and had become completely sectionalized. Many Southerners could not even vote for the Republican Party, which proclaimed opposition to the expansion of slavery. And the Democratic uh, Party ran one candidate in northern states, uh, Stephen Douglas, and a different candidate in southern states, John Breckinridge. Fundamentally, the split in the Democratic Party was over slavery. Southern Democrats were calling for a federal slave code to regulate and permit slavery everywhere in the country. And the Northern Democrats opposed this. As a result, the political divide re, uh, reflected the division in the country between states that permitted slavery and states that had it, uh, it, where it had been outlawed. The final question. Some historians have been saying that there was a similar political divide in 1860 to what we are seeing today. Do you agree? Answers. Professor Silber's answer is, there may be a few historians who think the divide is similar, but I think most would say we're looking at different patterns in, a political, in political divisions. Although the tendency toward heated and extreme political rhetoric might be similar. The inability to find a political middle ground, certainly in the federal government, does seem to be similar. The words of uh, BU Today and uh, Professor Nina, uh, Nina Silber uh, rounding out our uh, three uh, experts, academics, who are seem to be, to me, to be in fairly good agreement that the potential for political violence is great. However, a full-blown out-and-out civil war, in their opinions, uh, does not uh, seem that great of a possibility. It's something that we should bring up uh, in, we, in serious conversation uh, and try to, do, uh, try to bring this out into the open. Uh, it would be uh, very, very much incumbent upon us as Veterans for Peace to make sure that we do everything we can at least to uh, stave off a war in our own country as well as those uh, military expeditions that uh, various countries including the United States want to conduct at uh, uh, various times. Thanks a lot and we'll continue on with the program after another short break. You are tuned to WFMP Low Power 106.5 FM, Louisville, Kentucky. And you are hearing Veterans for Peace Radio Hour. Veterans for Peace is a worldwide group of U.S. veterans and associate members. If you want to know more about VFP, please visit veteransforpeace.org. There you'll find information and links to our great organization. For information about our local chapter, VFP Chapter 168, please look for us on Facebook at VFP 168. Continuing on with uh, today's program, we mentioned that we would talk about some of the stories that we've covered uh, in the past. And the first of those stories, uh, 
talks about the activities of a sailing vessel, a very historic sailing vessel, by the way, named the Golden Rule. A little background on the Golden Rule. After 21 months in the Hawaiian Islands, the historic anti-nuclear sailboat Golden Rule has departed from Honolulu to the west coast of the U.S. The Golden Rule first sailed from California to Hawaii 63 years ago in 1958. On her way to interfere with U.S. atmospheric nuclear testing in the Marshall Islands, the site of 67 U.S. nuclear bomb blasts from 1952 to 1958. Under orders from the Atomic Energy Commission, the U.S. Coast Guard stopped the boat from leaving Honolulu. The arrest and jailing of Golden Rule's captain, Albert Biglow, a retired World War II Navy commander, and his crew of Quaker peace activists garnered international media attention and increased opposition to nuclear testing and nuclear weapons. Atmospheric testing of nuclear weapons stopped by the U.S., the United Kingdom, and the Soviet Union in 1963 with the signing of the Partial uh, Test Ban Treaty. Golden Rule crew member George Willoughby was among a delegation of Quaker peace activists that met with President Kennedy before he signed his, the, this historic treaty, banning nuclear bomb testing in the atmosphere, underwater, and in space, but allowing it to continue underground. In July of 2019, Veterans for Peace, who own and manage the Golden Rule, sailed the 34-foot catch from San Diego to Hawaii with the intention of proceeding on to the Marshall Islands, the original destination of the 1958 crew. But once again, the Golden Rule's voyage to the Marshall Islands was stymied, this time by COVID-19. Because, because of the global pandemic, the Marshall Islands, already beset by outbreaks of measles and dengue fever, remains closed to international boats. In the fall of 2021, the Golden Rule will embark on another ambitious voyage for nuclear disarmament and peace. The historic vessel will sail the Great Loop, beginning in Minneapolis, proceeding down the Mississippi River to St. Louis, and then down to the Gulf Coast, around Florida, up the East Coast, through the Great Lakes, and down the rivers of Middle America to go back to the Gulf. The one-year-plus voyage will see the Golden Rule stopping for events in dozens of communities along the route, often where nuclear weapons manufacturers and nuclear power plants are located. We are sailing for a nuclear-free world and a peaceful, sustainable future. Our final update is uh, going to be talking about a very brave young woman who is an Air Force veteran, and her name is Reality Winner. We update her story with use of a recent article from The Intercept titled, Home, But Not Free. NSA whistleblower Reality Winner adjusts to her release from prison. Winner's home confinement is part of the longest sentence ever for leaking material to the press 
and her family is seeking clemency. In the latest phase of her record sentence for whistleblowing, a former NSA or National Security Agency linguist, Reality Winner, is a short drive from the blazing hot summertime beaches of Texas's uh, of Texas Gulf Coast. But she can't get near them. She can't even go into the yard of a neighbor who invited her to aid in his beekeeping project. Convicted under the Espionage Act for having shared a classified document on threats to election security with the media, Winner has been released to home confinement, but wears an unwieldy ankle bracelet. It beeps even if she strays too far, too far rather, within her family's yard. Not wanting to miss out, a high school friend showed up on a recent day with a kiddie swimming pool and some sand. Mom, I'm going to the beach today, Winner said to her mother, Billy Winner Davis. The pair filled the kid's toy and Winner waited in. Winner's family and friends are thrilled to have her home after four years behind bars, a stint that took miserable turns as her release date neared. She contracted COVID-19 as part of a mass infection in her prison. Filled, or excuse me, that's filed a sexual assault complaint against a guard and went thirsty and cold when her facility lost heat and water in February during the uh, Texas deadly winter storm. Despite the uh, elation that she is out of prison, Winter's family and friends say she is far from free. Every day is still marked by intrusions. Like an app prison authorities required on her phone to, to monitor her and needing prior approval to go to Walmart with her mother for errands. Winner is projected to be transferred from home confinement to supervised release in November. That's why they're continuing their year and a half long campaign for a presidential pardon or clemency, saying the whistleblower is being gagged from telling her own story. I really want the public to know that they're not seeing Reality Winner. They're not hearing from Reality Winner because she is under some serious restrictions, her mother said. Her mother added that Reality, who is under a gag order, is also banned from using social media, a condition her attorney, Allison Grinter, said is normal and up to the discretion of halfway house authorities. Grinter, speaking on the TV program Democracy Now!, said a pardon for winner is both something she and her country deserve. Reality released a document that gave us information that we needed to know at a time when we absolutely needed to know it, Grinter said. And she is in prison not because the information was a danger or put anyone in danger. She is in prison to solve a salve, rather, the insecurities of one man who was concerned about the uh, validity of his election win. Reality winner, keep her in your thoughts. She is a brave, brave veteran. The next few items that uh, we'll discuss on today's program are uh, s some of the activities that VFP has uh, been conducting uh, throughout the country. Veterans for Peace Radio Hour has covered uh, climate change topics in the past. Climate change is the preeminent issue 
in today's world because of the huge problems that a warming world will mean for health and the very survival of man on this planet. We are happy to report that uh, Veterans for Peace is now taking a larger and increasing role in getting out the word to arouse people to actions over this red alert issue facing all of us. And we'll talk about some of the things they're doing. One good example is this uh, following article that talks about uh, uh, what the Defense Department and the, the Pentagon is doing for uh, adapting to uh, war fighting in a hotter world. And that's the important kind of, this is the important kind of information that the public needs to know. Recently, a new Pentagon plan called for incorporating the realities of a hotter, harsher Earth at every level of, in the U.S. military from making worsening climate extremes a mandatory part of strategic planning to training troops how to secure their own water supplies and treat heat injury. The Pentagon, whose jets, aircraft carriers, truck convoys, bases, and office buildings cumulative, cumulatively burn more oil than most countries, was among the federal agencies that President Joe Biden ordered to overhaul their climate resilience plans when he took office in January. About 20 agencies released those plans recently. Quote, these are essential steps, not just to meet a requirement, but to defend the nation under all conditions, unquote. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin wrote in a letter accompanying the Pentagon's climate plans. It follows decades of U.S. military assessments that climate change is a threat to the U.S. national security, given increasing risk of conflict over water and other scarcer resources, threats to U.S. military installations from supply chains, and added risk to troops. The U.S. military is the single largest institutional consumer of oil in the world, and as such, a key contributor to the worsening climate, uh, the worsening climate globally. But the Pentagon plan focused on adapting to climate change, not on cutting its own significant output of climate-wrecking fossil fuel pollution. It sketches out in business-like terms the kind of risk U.S. forces face in the grim world ahead. Roadways collapsing under convoys as permafrost melts. Crucial equipment failing in extreme heat or cold. U.S. troops in dry regions overseas competing with local populations for dwindling water supplies, creating friction, even uh, conflict. These are the kind of stories that we all need to be familiar with, and it's part of uh, Veterans for Peace new plan, which was put into place formally uh, about a year ago with the formation of a group that started looking for ways that we can make our voice uh, heard better. Another effort that uh, Veterans for Peace has been uh, involved in is something called Fire Drill Fridays. It's inspired basically by the uh, young Swedish activist Greta Thunberg, uh, who said, our house is on fire and we need to act like it is on fire. Welcome to Fire Drill Fridays. The climate crisis is not an isolated issue. It involves every part of our economy and society. Because of that, each Friday uh, demonstration will have a different focus on it. 
as it relates to climate change. Scientists, movement leaders, experts, activists, indigenous leaders, community members, and youth will come together to share their stories and demand that action be taken before it is too late. And uh, this has been going on for quite some time. Uh, Jane Fonda has been a very, very active participant in it, uh, as well as uh, president of VFP, uh, uh, Mr. Rippenhagen. Uh, they both have been arrested, by the way, for their uh, activities. And we are very, very pleased to announce uh, that uh, Representative Ro Khanna, one of the very reliable progressive congressmen uh, that it's uh, uh, wonderful to have in Washington, is now joining us. And everyone else, all of the rest of the groups, it's not just Veterans for Peace. It's a lot of groups that are involved in this activity. And uh, I am personally very happy to see uh, Veterans for Peace involved. Another good example is a recent email uh, that's been put out uh, by one of the uh, climate change uh, activists at uh, uh, Veterans for Peace, and it uh, uh, addresses the uh, United Nations Human Rights Council and encouraging them to take climate change more seriously than it has been and to treat the issue with urgency, deliberation, and action that it demands. The Council has the tools to do so, and it should use them now. The recent Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report clarified beyond a doubt the severity of the climate crisis attributable to greenhouse gas emissions. And it's actions like this, pointing out what is going on that is extremely necessary. And I am, again, I, I can't begin to tell you how happy I am to see many, many of our veterans taking a very active role in uh, trying to get this word out to people. The only way that climate change, or I should say the only way that governments might decide to do something about climate change other than talk about it, is for a large number of people, very large number of people, to become involved and to stand up and do whatever they can do. And it includes many, many things. We have to do it. It is just essential. We'll continue on with another large issue uh, that has uh, come up lately and uh, talk about what VFP is doing about for that. Honoring Indigenous Peoples Day. Veterans for Peace believes that the federal holiday commemorating the arrival of Christopher Columbus to the, quote, New World is an affront to Indigenous peoples everywhere and particularly to Native peoples in the Americas. We denounce the celebration of a person who carried out mass killings and genocidal acts against indigenous peoples and paved the way for European colonization of native lands and enslavement of native peoples. We recognize that the annual observance of Columbus Day here at home and our continued wars and occupations abroad are rooted in racism, xenophobia, and militarism.
Our mission includes the commitment to seek justice for all victims of violence and war. Accordingly, we urge our government to no longer honor a person who committed atrocities. Veterans for Peace understands that the struggle for indigenous rights cannot be decoupled from other movements for equality and justice. We believe that violence and injustice must be challenged and ended in all its forms and that all human dignity must be protected and defended. The Columbus Day holiday is a symbol of oppression and a violation of this dignity. Movements for indigenous rights and sovereignty are ongoing across the world, from struggles to protect water and sacred land in places such as Latin America, the Caribbean, Mexico, and India, to here at home, as indigenous communities across the country continue their long fight for justice on the front lines of the struggle for climate justice. Veterans for Peace acknowledges the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which establishes a universal framework of minimum standards for survival, dignity and well-being, and the rights of the world's indigenous peoples. The United States was one of only four nations to vote against the Declaration in 2007 when it was adopted. However, in 2010, the United States changed course and announced its support for the Declaration. The Columbus Day holiday is one barrier to the healing of the deep wounds of this nation's violent founding and colonization and to the recognition and protection of indigenous rights. We therefore call on the federal government to join the more than two dozen U.S. cities, including Phoenix, Denver, Seattle, Minneapolis, and the states of South Dakota and Vermont in replacing Columbus Day with Indigenous Peoples Day. Thank you. Now I will tell you a story that contains within it an opinion that I have held for many, many years. It begins at 1.30 on a Monday morning with the barracks sleeping bay lights being turned on full bright and a man yelling shotgun shotgun at the top of his lungs it is hard to sleep through all that and thus unfolded a chain of events that would give me and everyone else a front row seat to a revolution by the way shotgun shotgun was apparently a code word for DEFCON 2, DEFCON being a cool way for the U.S. Army to say defense condition. So the 82nd Airborne was placed on alert to prepare for imminent departure for some place where ammunition would not be optional. As a 19-year-old medic in a combat engineer platoon, I had been on various types of alerts and standbys to deploy and at this point, most of us, which had had the same experience, were not too impressed. In quick succession, all personnel who lived off post were ordered to return to the barracks. 
On Tuesday, the doors were locked. You could not leave only for medical reasons. On Wednesday, all public phones were disabled. And 24 hours later, the trucks arrived to take us to Pope Air Force Base. There, the C-130 transports awaited us. We were issued parachutes and ammunition. And for the first time since this episode began, we were given our first short briefing. A squad leader came by and said, it'll be a night jump. We will cross a coastline and then jump. The engineers will assemble on the orange panel. It sounded a little sketchy and lacking in details. And that was it. And we were also certain that this was all he knew. Note, the panel he mentioned was a large 20 by 30 foot piece of cloth that would be visible from the air by a descending paratrooper. However, it was never explained how we might be able to see that type of signal in a pitch black night. Let me also state that uh, after my active duty in the Army, I went to school and eventually became a commercial pilot. During my years as a pilot, I became friends with two other pilots, both former Air Force, who flew on that mission that night and both told the same story of maximum confusion as the leaders tried to decide whether we would jump or be able to land at our destination. The paratroopers knew that things were confused because we were ordered to put on our parachutes three different times during that trip. But the jump god smiled that night and we were able to land. I wonder if they ever remembered to go out and pick up the orange panel. So here we are in a place most of us had never heard of and could not find on a map. In the middle of a revolution, none of us had any knowledge of. No one ever explained anything to us except some very vague reference to keeping this place safe from communism. Of course, we were all living in the shadow of the Cold War and we had been heavily indoctrinated in the evils of the world wide commie domination. In this vacuum of information, we were forced to enlighten ourselves in just what was going on in this little country. That the United States military had a great amount of interest in. It did not take us long to start forming an idea of what the situation was. We used our own observation and there was plenty to observe. Because we had paratroopers who spoke the local language and were speaking to the people, we began to get the sense that we were probably on the wrong side of what could be described as right and just, simply from a common sense point of view. We were now faced with the unusual circumstance of being shot at, and sometimes hit, by the side of this little war that was probably the right side. Because of these revelations, I for one, I cannot and would not speak for someone else. But I often wonder if on average, we did not develop that anger for the enemy 
that would cause extreme reactions. Because what I saw with my unit was complete professionalism, and in a lot of instances, kindness to the people. I feel very happy that I personally never observed any war crimes or any mistreatment of the population. My first opinion is that war in any form is wrong and very extremely fundamentally wrong when it comes to children. To this day, I experience PTSD for what I saw relative to children. Why at this late date, we as human beings still insist on settling our differences through war is one of life's greatest mysteries. My second opinion, which address, addresses a problem that we uh, at VFPC, when meeting with people during uh, any sorts of direct actions, is being accused of acting against veterans or active duty personnel. Nothing could be farther from the truth. We are veterans, and in my case, I was able to see young men rise to the occasion and letting common sense guide their discipline of fire and action to minimize damage to non-combatants. No, we focus on the governments that send these young people to put themselves and the populations they encounter into harm's way. I was lucky to see what I saw of humanity in my first-hand observations, but there is a good body of information to suggest that it does happen in war down through time. If you watch the TV commercials that the military puts out to attract young men and women by an awful large load of money being dropped on them by the military-industrial complex, the people that profit from these wars. I don't know if anybody profited from this action that we were involved so many long years ago. Probably. Somebody made the parachutes. Somebody manufactured the ammunition. Let's give it some thought, folks. I truly appreciate your kind attention today. Good day. You have been listening to Veterans for Peace Radio Hour here on Forward Radio, WFMP LP, 106.5 FM, Louisville, Kentucky. We have enjoyed our time with you today and look forward to having you back sometime soon. Please join us on the path to peace and nonviolence. We can imagine a world without war. And no matter what the journey is, it will always begin with the first step. For more information, please go to VeteransForPeace168.org or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening.